Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. We're talking about building families. That's what we're talking about today. Uh, we're in this series called Core Sample. Core Sample is like the density of the earth that you're going to build a foundation on, right? And so we talk about like, what's a healthy foundation. So how do you build your life on the foundation of Jesus Christ? That's what we're talking about. And today in the book of Colossians, we've been just teaching our way through Colossians. We get to this section of scripture that talks about your household. Like how do you build a healthy family? And uh, has anybody seen the progressive insurance commercial? Where the guy comes on, he's like, I'm helping families not turn out like their parents. You know what I'm talking about? So uh, you were either like your parents, and that's either good news or horrifying to you, or you made a conscious decision not to be like your parents, right? So just to get us warmed up, I want, I want to do something that will really help you like put your finger on like how you grew up and what your family was like. Are you ready? Here we go. The question is this. What TV show best represents the family that you grew up in? Maybe your family was like Leave it to Beaver, right? Traditional family. Mom always wore a dress no matter what she was doing. Maybe your family was like the Brady Bunch. Why? Because you're a blended family. Three girls, three boys. They came together, formed this big tribe of people. Okay. Maybe your family was like the TV show Fresh Off the Boat. Immigrant parents, Asian culture. Maybe your family was like the show Blackish, just grew up in a black culture type of family. Maybe your family was like Seventh Heaven because you were a pastor's kid. We'll pray for you. Maybe your family was like Gilmore Girls, single mom. Or Full House, single dad with a bunch of aunts and uncles around. Or maybe your family was like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Maybe you were, I don't know, in West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground where I spent most of my days. Chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool, and all shooting some b-ball outside of the school when a couple of guys who were up to no good started making trouble in my neighborhood. I got in one little fight and my mom got scared and she said, you're moving with your auntie and uncle in Bel Air. And maybe that's your story. You better clap for that. <laughs> maybe your family was like um, a modern family. All right, I just think it's interesting that the title of the show, Modern Family, Grandpa Has a Trophy Wife, and I'm just going to say this, there's just a lot going on in that family, all right? Maybe it was The Simpsons, where the kids run the show, right? The kids really run the house. Maybe your family was like Roseanne, an overly strong mom was present there. Or maybe your family was like The Jungle Book because you were simply raised by animals. I, I do marriage coaching with couples. Sometimes it's premarital, sometimes it's after marriage. And uh, one of the things that we always do with couples is this. I want to help them identify their family of origin. Why? Because something that their family did, it, it's going to creep into their lives. And we want to take the good family legacies that have been passed down, and let's reproduce that good part. And let's also take the, um, the broken blessings that our families have given us, and let's shut them down. Do you know what yours are? 
I mean, do you know what your parents handed down to you that you love? And do you know what your parents handed down to you that, mm, this is the thing, this is my generation that's going to put an end to that? I mean, I think that would be a great discussion around lunch today. And honestly, if I'm really talking about this message accurately, I'm hoping that this really just feeds discussion in your home. You might not walk out of here of like, oh, that was, he made that one point, this was just really good, and this is how we're going to change our family. I'm, I'm hoping this actually just brings discussion for you. Now, in the book of Colossians, that's where we're at. So Colossians chapter 3, turn there. There's these instructions about how a first century Christian household is to function. Now, none of us grew up in the first century, right? So let me describe to you family life in the Greco-Roman world. I'm going to hit you with a lot of stuff here. Hang on. Paterfamilias is the term that describes the male headship of the family in the Greco-Roman world. The male figurehead, he had absolute rule over everyone in his household. If his kids angered him, now if you're still living in your parents' house, pay attention to this. If they angered him, he could, he had the legal right to disown his children, sell them into slavery, or even kill them. I'm not saying this happened very often. It's actually stated that this didn't happen very often, but there was no legal recourse if it did happen. Women, they could not hold public office. They could not vote. They could not own property most of the time. Actually, everyone in the household could not own property. The only one who held property was this paterfamilias, the the male headship of the house. Uh, Romans, according to Plutarch, gave their girls in marriage when they were 12 years old, sometimes younger. 12 years old, that's when they were eligible to be married. Ben Sira, he was a, um, a Jewish sage who lived a couple hundred years before Jesus. He wrote this as advice to dads. He who loves his son will whip him often, bow his neck in his youth, and beat his sides while he is young. I'm hoping that's not how you grew up. I'm just describing this is what childhood would have been like for those growing up in the first century. I want us to recognize this. This is the culture of the day that Jesus steps into. And this is the culture of what was happening when Paul writes his letter to this church in Colossae. So with that in mind, I'm going to make this statement. I think Paul radically redefined relationships By shifting away from power to love, humility, and kindness. The culture of the day was based off of authority and based off of power. And Paul's like, I'm going to give you a different metric, a different standard. It's going to be love, humility, and kindness. Now, to the husbands and wives, let me me just give you kind of a global view of some things that Paul wrote. First is this, to the husbands and wife in Ephesians chapter 5. Stay in Colossians. We'll get there. He says this. To the husband and wife, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, oftentimes people start with the very next verse that reads this, that says, wives, submit to your husbands. And all the ladies are like, yeah, that sounds like it's from the first century. Right? But we miss the radical words that Paul wrote that said this. No, no, no. Husbands, wives, here's what you do. You submit to one another. We'll get on how, to how that works in just a minute. He says to the church, 
There is neither, this is Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. These are all the cultural divisions. Are, Are you saying that everything that identifies me as a Jewish person or a Gentile, that we used to be at war with each other, we hated each other? It's like, no, no, no. You're equals. You're one. Boy, he's slave and, and free. There's clearly a status there. He's like, no, 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 no. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Men and women, I mean, you're, you're all, what, one in Christ Jesus? I have a question for you. Did Paul just get rid of all the social distinctions? Did he just get rid of all the cultural distinctions? Oh, even better question for our day. Did Paul just get rid of all the gender distinctions? The answer to that is simply, no, he doesn't. There is a difference between men and women. There's a difference between a Jewish person and a Gentile person. There's a difference between a slave and a a free person in the first century. But Paul is declaring that you're all equal. Not that you're all the same. But for the first century, look at me, that was radical. He was totally going against the culture of the day. So to the church then, He writes this. This is Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Take a look at it in your Bibles. To the church, he writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Does that sound like everything else I read to you from the first century? No way. Paul's letter to this church, to this culture, is radically different. Kindness, humility, patience, gentleness, We talked about this last week, and so reference that, just about the the kindness and compassion that God's people were called to in a pretty brutal culture. This is where we're going to go today, chapter 3, verse 17. He says this about relationships, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, in word or deed, that is about relationships, right? Do it all like Jesus would do it. Treat people the way Jesus treated people. And then immediately right after that, look at the very next verse, Paul writes nine verses to Christians about their, how their family should function. I don't know about your Bible, but mine gives a little heading there. It wasn't in the original inscription, but it just gives us a heading to know what we're talking about. It says, instructions for Christian households. And as I read to you what Paul writes here, I want to ask this question. Do we actually allow God's word to inform and possibly even redefine our family relationships? Before I read this to you, are we going to allow God's word to breathe health into our family relationships today? Is that what the word is designed for? Are we willing to embrace God's words as instructive for our families, even if it goes against how we grew up, even if we've never done it that way, do we believe that these words have instructive value for today, or did all of this just apply to the first century? That's my question. So here's what he writes about building a family on mutual love and service. You ready? Chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, Submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. 
Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Remember the question. Do we allow God's word to inform and possibly redefine our family relationships? Or is this scripture outdated, unhelpful, and irrelevant? If this scripture is simply God's word addressed to the first century culture alone, then we could actually disregard this whole section of scripture as just culturally irrelevant. But before we do that, I actually have a few concerns about that. My concerns are this. Number one, this isn't the only section of Scripture where Paul writes about the Christian family. In the book of Ephesians, in the book of Titus, in the book of 1 Timothy, he reiterates these points again and again and again. And if it's really just for first century people, I'm really deeply concerned that maybe he has nothing to say for our families. Now, I want you to understand this. I'm a, I'm, man, I'm jumping in the deep end with you right now. My second concern is this. I get why people call this irrelevant. It's not actually because of those words. It's because of the words that immediately follow it. Did you catch them? I didn't read them to you. Here's what he writes, verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eyes are on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Drop down to chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, not because, uh, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. <laughs> I'm sorry, said what? Some of y'all who are like new to the Bible, you're like, so slaves and masters are okay? No. When I was a kid, I just remember pastors teaching on this. He'd be like, no, no, today we just talk about this in the relationship of employer and employee. That is a disingenuous at best. We can't talk about it that way. What Paul is describing here is a household in the first century. And slavery and masters was oftentimes a part of this household in the first century. To be very clear, this is not a statement supporting slavery. Paul was simply writing a statement about Christian households and how they functioned. And he's actually writing it to a church, to Christians, who might in this church, even though they're equal, he already stated this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. He sees the value of both. They're equal. They're one. But he says, this is how I want you to function. I mean, care for each other. Don't let the outside standard of power and authority get in your way. Do the right thing. The question then is this, since slavery was wrong and abolished, should we simply do, with, do away with everything Paul writes about families? That seems to be kind of the, the obvious thing. But my answer is this, no. You don't disregard what he says about husbands, wives, kids, parents. Because right below that, he addresses slaves and masters in the family. Uh, here's why. From the, slavery was never a union that God defined or approved of in the Old Testament or the New Testament. He didn't create it. People created it because of sin. But here's what I think is interesting. From the opening chapters of the Bible and the creation of man and woman, he brings them together, husband and wife, and he declares that that union is very good. All the way through the Old Testament, it's the same. You get to the wisdom literature, it says, uh, enjoy the wife of your youth. 
There's an enjoyment in marriage that is supposed to be there. Throughout the New Testament, this relationship is continuously affirmed by Jesus and the New Testament writers. I think we should be incredibly careful if we're going to look at a part of God's word and say, you know what, I'm going to disregard it as irrelevant for today. My third concern is this, is if we disregard this scripture, what keeps us from just picking stuff from the scriptures that make us uncomfortable? And picking stuff that we just go, ah, that's not how I grew up. That's not really my, how, how it works for me. I'm going to disregard it. What keeps us from doing that with any scripture? Because it was all written a long time ago. You already know <clears throat> what I believe about this, I think. That the description of the husband and the wife and the parent and child is a beautiful model for family life today. So here's, let me explain this to you, okay? <clears throat> We're going to talk about building family on mutual love and service. So the first comment I'm going to make is to husbands. Now, if you read along with me, you noticed, you noticed who did Paul address first? It was wives, right? And then he addresses husbands. <clears throat> Why does he go in that order? I think he did it because what he says to the wives is not shocking. They're like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we get it. It operates that. Wives, submit to your husbands. You're like, that's kind of where the culture is today in the first century. But what he writes to the husbands, he's like, boom, boom, shocker, guys. If you're going to live according to Jesus, you're going to have to go against the first century culture. It's the shock. And then when he addresses kids first, it's like, oh, yeah, obey your dads. Of course, or they're going to beat the heck out of us, right? That's not the shocker. The shocker is how dads are to treat their kids in the first century. So here we go. Two husbands. Husbands, here it is. I'm going to do it in a little different order, okay? I'm going to go husbands first. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. According to the non-Christian culture that I've described, I think the unwritten rule was this. Husbands, control your wives. Dominate them. Isn't that what I read to you about the first century? Not, not what Paul's writing. Make sure we don't get that. I think that's what the culture was. And he says, no, 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 no. Husbands, love your wives. Don't, don't even be harsh with them. It's interesting. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, um, it's actually, Paul describes this relationship more robustly. He uses a lot more words. In fact, he says this, he says, wives, here's a great way to get along with your husbands, treat them with respect. And then he says this, husbands, you want to build a great marriage, then do this, love your wives. But here's what's crazy. He doesn't say it once. He doesn't say it twice. He says it three times. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Then he goes on to articulate, husbands, love your wives, just like Jesus loved the church. Why does he say it three times? Is it because we're dense, guys? No, the answer is no, ladies. He says it three times because it's so countercultural to the society at the time. I'm going to define it this way. To love our wives, I think, is this. It's about doing what is best for her. It's about putting her needs and wants ahead of your own. But here's the great challenge, guys, and you're going to get this. How many times do we actually know and understand what it is our wives want? What it is they prefer? What it is that they need? I can't tell you how many times my wife has said to me, do you not know me? 
I'm listening. Um, you've heard of the love languages, right? It, it's, it's a different way of giving and receiving love, right? Here's just a list of them. Uh, for some people, they give and receive love as a form of like touch or, or gifts or affirmation or appreciation, acts of service or quality of time, right? The problem comes in this. However we interpret love or we best give it and receive it, um, we often love our spouse in a way that actually we appreciate it. I don't know if you've ever had a miss where like for your anniversary, you gave her a really nice gift, but what she really wanted was quality of time with you. And like, oh, that was a miss. I may have missed a couple things over our years. For Kelly's first birthday as a married couple, I got her this really nice mountain bike. She actually appreciated it. But so she wouldn't ride alone, I got me a nice mountain bike too for her birthday. Why are you laughing? I may have missed slightly on her birthday because I wasn't really asking and listening what's the best thing for her. So here's what I want to do. As we talk about this, I just want to give you some really practical things. Because it's interesting. Paul doesn't go into detail. Okay, if this happens, then do this. A husband's love your wives, and he doesn't give you like a 10-point outline about what you should do. I want to give you some just practical situations here. If you're going to put her needs and wants ahead of your own, you better do this. Listen to her. Know her. Love her unconditionally. What if we took the time to ask this question? Hey, babe, how am I doing at knowing you? Hey, babe, uh, how am I doing at appreciating you? I, I wonder if, if you asked that question over lunch today, and then here's the secret, ready? Let her answer. And then don't respond with any words other than this. Tell me more about that, Right? And then you just sit there in silence and you look at her awkwardly until she asks, so how am I doing knowing and appreciating you? I'm just kidding. Don't do that. It will not turn out well for you. She's going to be like, you just asked me that question so that you get it. You want to love her? You want to put her needs and wants and listen to her. The, The next thing is this. When you listen to her, man, appreciate her abilities. Appreciate her strengths, verbalize it, appreciate her beauty. And I don't just mean physical beauty. Appreciate who she is and how God made her. Husbands, um, if you want to do a, what if you did this self-inventory about your upcoming week? I mean, if you pulled out your phone and looked at your calendar, and you look at everything that was happening on there, and you just did this exercise as a clarifying question. What if you asked this? As I look at my schedule, am I doing what's best for me? Or am I doing what's best for my family? We often schedule things that are all about work and all about us. We live in a culture that emphasizes self-care, right? And rightfully so, because oftentimes we will go and go and go and we don't self-care. But sometimes in our marriages, we may self-care to the extent that we don't spouse care, right? You know what she needs, wants, and desires from you so that you can give that. Husbands, love your wives. And then Paul writes to the wives. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands 
as is fitting in the Lord. Um, I've heard people say, I don't believe in that verse. What I believe in is I believe in equality. (laughs) Quick question for you. The Trinity, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three parts of God. Uh, Were they equal? You're like, trick question. I don't know the answer. Orthodox theology, what the scriptures teach is this, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal. They're equally God. But wait, wait, wait. But Jesus, it talks about him submitting to the Father's will. So he was not only equal, but he submitted to God's will. That's interesting. So equality and submission can actually exist in the same person, the same way it does in marriage. It's not about equality. We're all equal. But he still makes this statement about wives submit to your husbands. What I think we should recognize is how Paul coupled these things together. Ephesians, right? Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church, which means this. Husbands, serve your wives sacrificially. Put them first. Listen to this, wives. Wives then, allow him to put you first in the marriage. I think that's what he's talking about. Wives, would you submit to allowing him to put you first? I think it's a beautiful symbiotic relationship that often gets messed up. If you've ever read this verse that says, wives, submit to your husbands, you're like, no, 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 I, I don't believe that. Could, could I ask a question that just you and your own heart might evaluate to say this? What if you don't believe that because you've had it modeled in the wrong way for you? Again, I think uh, the families we grew up in have a powerful effect on us. And, it, and it, man, if you're sitting in church with family today, I'm, I'm not trying to point fingers, right? But the reality is this, is maybe it just wasn't modeled for you in a way that, was, yeah, dad, he sacrificed all kinds of stuff and he put his wife first, even ahead of the kids. When you see it and can recognize it, I think you'll admit that it's a powerful It's a powerful relationship. Another thought is, as an equal partner, ladies, I would say this. Celebrate his leadership. I can't tell you what it does inside of me to make me stand up taller, a little prouder. When my wife appreciates who I am in the leadership in our family. And by the way, can I say this? Some of y'all might have grown up in a family that was all about like, I'm the authority, I'm the man. Like, you gotta, you know how many times that's happened to my, my wife or my life and, and our family in the last two and a half decades? Maybe three times at most. And I'm not even saying all three of those times were appropriate on my part. It just, it doesn't occur. I'm there to put her needs first. And she turns around and respects me and, and tries to put me first. It's like this great serving competition. I'm trying to win it. That is a beautiful relationship. But when she recognizes how I lead, man, I just love it. It makes me feel like a man. I, I, I know that's, I, I don't have a verse for that. It's just I can't tell you what it does inside of me. Ladies, ask your husbands about it sometime. 
I, I think he'll tell you something similar. So, uh, wives, let me just give you a clarifying question. The clarifying question is this. Am I doing what is best for me, or am I doing what's best for my, my family? I, I would say, just as a reminder, if this lands in your life in a sour way, explore the models you've had in your life. And maybe reach out and discover some new models. Fathers, let's talk to you real quick. It says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. Other translations, let me just read these to you. Fathers, don't provoke your children. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Do not aggravate your children. Don't come down too hard on your children. It might sound easy, right? But here's the problem. I think this is really hard because we don't want to raise soft kids, do we? And sometimes when we spoil them, we raise soft kids. I want my kids to grow up resilient, but I also don't want them to be crushed by my demands. When I was a kid, all through elementary school, part of my middle school years, we grew up swimming five days a week, Monday through Friday, swim team, hour and a half a day. I think my parents did that to try and like burn some of my energy. Had a lot of that as a kid. I just remember coming home after an hour and a half in the pool eating dinner and them saying, hey, Scott, it's your turn to do dishes tonight. Mm. See, in our family, everybody had a real strong sense that they belonged. But belonging meant contributing. So what my parents did was they gave me opportunities to serve. Do your kids have opportunities to serve in your family? If they don't, you might be raising a soft kid. I'm not trying to crush them. My kids today will tell you this. They will never look down on my work ethic, and they will tell you that. Yeah, my dad's work ethic, he'll try and outwork us every time. But they will also tell you this. I not just try to inspire work in them. I also give them opportunities. We're like, no, suck it up. Let's go. It's on you. I know that's a great spiritual encouragement. Hey, let's go. Suck it up. This is on you. <laughs> that's my parenting at its best, all right? So let me give you just some practical helps. Number one, model servant leadership to your kids. This is what I mean. Ready? This is so fantastic. You might even write this down. Don't worry. Your kids will turn out a lot like you. Be careful. Your kids will turn out a lot like you. Isn't that fantastic? Am I surprised when on occasion one of my kids absolutely loses their mind and throws a temper tantrum? No. They learned it from their mom. Why are you laughing? You're laughing because you know that's not true. They may on occasion have seen that once or twice in their life in their dad. For your kids, dads, know your kids individually. You got to know them individually and appreciate them individually. What would crush one kid disciplinary-wise? Maybe exactly what the other one needs. Next point for you to think about. Just keep providing opportunities for them to serve. We've covered that. Um, dads, let me just ask you a question here. Am I doing what is best for me? Or am I doing what's best for my family? Question sounds familiar, doesn't it? What if as a dad, 
We didn't do the thing that was easiest for us because honestly, discipline is work for us because then we have to enforce it. It's challenging to sit down and listen to your kid like, man, I don't don't have time for this discussion, but what if to really know them, you had to listen to them? You had to ask the question, hey, do you feel appreciated in our family? Because I want you to hear this. Your kids' voices, they matter. If your kids' voice doesn't matter in your family, they will grow up believing that their voice doesn't matter anywhere. Or they'll try and go find a community where their voice does matter, and they will walk away from your family. We don't want that either. Man, parenting is hard. But I think this clarifying question, am I doing what's best for me or doing what's best for my family? I think it's not something that you're going to be like, oh, yeah, this is the clear answer. I think this is a reflection question that we all need to embrace. Now, last group, we're just going to run through this real quick. Kids, hey, if there's any kids in the room, this would be great. Here you go. Ready? Children. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So, sons and daughters, I'm going to talk to you for just a minute. Parents, yes, you can forward this podcast to your kids, put it on repeat, whatever you need to do. When Paul writes, obey your parents in everything, it's super interesting. The Greek word that means in everything literally means this, in everything. You want it to go well with you, mom and dad? Follow them. I mean, do what they say. It doesn't mean you don't have a voice. But if you want peace in your family, just absorb that for a moment. Obey them. Now, there's an obvious limit to obedience here. Are are we right? If your parents ask you to do something illegal, unethical, or immoral, then don't do it. Quick question. How often has that happened to you? Hey, son, if you, could, um, if you could just go real quick and just go do a drug deal for me, that would be awesome. Tell them no. But man, if that's how you're growing up, we need to talk and figure that out. I just think from the beginning of history, there's a strange phenomenon that has taken place. The strange phenomenon is this. It's where kids have tried to tell their parents how to parent. I'm not saying that your child's always wrong. But I got to point this out. If you're a, a, a son or a daughter and you're with your parents, can I just say this? Please recognize that you have no idea what it's like to be a parent. You don't know what it's like when this baby's born and all of a sudden they hand it to you and usher you out of the hospital and you're like, <gasps> my responsibility. That moment to me, was terrifying. From this moment on, this little thing, this little girl, this little boy, it's my responsibility. So son or daughter, you may have an opinion about how to handle a situation, and you may be right, but you have never felt what it feels like to love someone like a parent loves a kid. You've never felt what it's like to be responsible for another person's life. You can't know what it's like until you've had your own kid. And when you do, you may parent better than your parents, and I hope you do. But at this moment, I would ask you as a son or a daughter to develop sympathy because it's not easy being a parent. Amen? (laughs) All the parents just said amen. Last thought for you. I think peace comes through obedience. You want a life of peace in your house? Listen to your parents. Do what they ask. 
You want a family to experience peace? One way is to experience it through obedience. But I'm going to be super clear on this. Students, if your parents' relationship is not at peace, that ain't on you. Because there's too many kids out there where mom and dad are struggling. And kids are like, if I can just do this, if I can just do this, if I can just do this, mom and dad will be okay. They're the adults. That's on them. All right? Their conflict, it's not on you. You're the kid. But to the best of your ability, would you obey and follow them? And another scripture just talks about this, that if you do that, kids, um, it will go well with you. That's God's promise to you. So kids, for you, a clarifying question. Am I doing what's best for me? Or am I doing what's best for my family? It's interesting because it's the same question for all four of us. Husbands, wives, parents, kids. What if you just ask this question? This week, am I going to do what's good for me? Or am I actually thinking about the people I love in my family, how do I serve them, encourage them? How do I love them? How do I show them kindness? Because I don't think it's this moment where you're like, oh, this is the answer to it, and you just get it. I I think this is a reflection question. Would you be daring enough today around your lunch table to ask these kinds of questions? Do I know you? Do I appreciate you? How am I doing in caring for you, If you ask that, I think you're going to discover the radical nature and the beautiful relationship that Paul describes in God's word. Let's have our band come out. Let's bow and pray for just a minute. <clears throat> Maybe in this moment, God will um, share something with you. Maybe there's a, a relationship in your family that's wounded, that maybe is struggling And if I'm very honest, I know that there's some of you that are struggling to the degree that, listen, there are no easy answers, and you need God's intervention. Maybe that's what you'll pray for today. God, intervene in my family. I just want to give you space for a moment to use your words and talk to God, to say, God, help me, or God, show me. God, give me courage or give me strength. What words do you need to speak to God today? Take this moment. Talk to him. So God, today we lift up our families to you. It's not easy being a husband. It's not easy being a wife. It's not easy being parents. It's not easy being a kid. But God, you're with us. Because of that, you can bring healing and hope. You can change us. And so God, would you move in our families and keep them united and strong and close together? God, would you help in a way that we can't change? God, would you give us strength and courage? And in the end, would you help us live out the design for your marriage so so that there's unity and oneness and joy. And we pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. And everybody said,